I'm Noel Holtzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. Every other week, I will be sitting down with someone who is leading their industry, pioneering a new product or service, or just making important things happen. Join me as we go from the corner office to an open concept. This week, how do you stand out in a crowded investing market? If you're well simple, a four-year-old company with 70,000 investors and more than $2 billion in assets, you do it by making investing simple, easy, and appealing, and by building a brand that looks and feels very different from the traditional banks and brokerages in Canada. You know, we are still a new company, so we're still at the very start of this journey. Hi, I'm Mike Katchen, founder and CEO of Wealth Simple. Shockingly unboring is my take on Wealthsimple's latest ad campaign. Rather than staid, predictable stock photos of couples seeking their first mortgage or tanned fit 50-somethings playing tennis and looking forward to their retirement, Wealthsimple's ads feature people that look like you'd see on the subway. People with beards, turbans, some young, some old, people of color, people who look real. I invited Mike Katchen, the CEO of Wealthsimple, to our downtown Toronto office. We talked big banks, millennial investing, and how our studio location across the street from Shopify brings back a particularly cheeky memory. Uh, We started about three and a half years ago with the mission to make really smart, thoughtful investing Uh, simple and accessible for everybody and I think we've grown by doing just that you know the business started fairly organically I was living in San Francisco working with some friends and we sold a startup that we were working on and the friends I was working with came into some money for the first time in their lives that they wanted to invest they asked me for help and I love investing I've been doing it since I was 12 and my sister randomly entered me into a stock picking contest I decided to help them figure it out. And it was through that process of trying to help my friends just figure out a smart, simple way to manage their money that we realized there was a real problem here where people were smart enough to know that investing is important, didn't really have any good options to do it. Most of the top investing executives in Canada are in their 50s and 60s. At the very least, they're in their 40s. Mike is barely 30. So I wanted to know how he got here so fast. He studied business at Western, then did a stint at McKinsey Consulting. Now he's running a company with offices in Toronto, New York, and London, and he's taking on Canada's biggest banks. But he almost didn't make it out of Western. I nearly dropped out of university in third year to start a business. I had won a business competition the year before that um, and was excited about the opportunity to go and pursue that. So I, I nearly left. And just before the end of the school year, random set of circumstances landed me a job at then iconic Canadian company, Black's Photography. It doesn't exist anymore, yes, unfortunately. of course, of course. Um, but I got a call one day from the CEO of Black's who offered me a job to come work with him on the turnaround of, of the company. A private equity firm had just stepped in and he wanted to turn it around. And how, sorry, how, did he know, how did he know you? It's one of those things that, you know, right place, right time. I, um, I won the business competition the year before, which was judged by the then dean of the Ivy Business School. Got it. And... Uh, the CEO of Blacks was an Ivy grad who called the dean and asked for a recommendation. 
And I'm probably the only student that Dean knew because the year after we won the competition, I asked her for coffee to thank her for judging and made sure that we had a relationship. And so when he called, I think I'm probably the only name she was able to offer. And uh, <laughs> She might have a different take on that, but okay, perhaps. Well, let's go with that. <laughs> um, and so that's how we got connected. Um, he was an amazing and, and remains an amazing mentor and entrepreneur um, and mentor and friend of mine and convinced me that starting a business would be a, a silly thing to do and dropping out of school would be a silly thing to do. And he was also an ex-McKinsey consultant and convinced me that the right way to start a career was in consulting and kind of set me down that path. So that's why I even kind of uh, decided to go down that route in the first place. And I was there for two years because it's a fairly standard you know, thing in consulting is uh, at, at the time, uh, you would generally join out of school for two years and then they would encourage you to leave get more experience, perhaps go do an MBA, okay. and then come back. Um, so I had an incredible two years, learned a, an amazing amount. In fact, that's how I met my current co-founder in the business at Wealthsimple. So I, I, owe, I owe a lot to my time at McKinsey. And so after the two years at McKinsey, uh, then you were involved with the, the Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the evolution of that? Yeah, so it was, um, you'll start to notice a theme here. So it was my last month at McKinsey and I nearly left to start a business. <laughs> and um, I, um, that's what I had wanted to do. And I was thinking about starting something on my own when I got a call from uh, one of my former colleagues at McKinsey who had moved to San Francisco the year before. Um, and he said, Mike, we just started this business. Uh, it's called A Thousand Memories. We got into this thing called Y Combinator which at the time nobody had really heard of. Um, you know, why don't you come join us? Unsolicited offer, if you'd like to help us build this company, you know, we'd love to have you. And it was obvious to me that that's exactly what I should be doing after McKinsey. So I got on a plane and moved down to San Francisco and uh, we built that company together over over a few years. And what was your role in that company? Were you were you the, an operations person? You've, you've said you're not a technologist. So uh, were you the finance guy? I was a, a bit of a jack of all okay. trades. So my mandate was growth. Okay. So um, it was around um, learning uh, insights about our users, trying to evolve the product to you know build for growth, uh, business development and partnerships. So I, I really led those two areas of the business, product and business development um, were my, my areas of focus. And then that was sold to Ancestry.com? That's correct. With their uh, scope to stay. That's typically the case, right? If you're one of the founders or... Yeah. So I wasn't one of the founders okay. of that company. I got hired into that business, but um, I, uh, I did stay for a year okay. uh, along with the rest of the team. And we worked on integrating our product into Ancestry so that it would live on and, and work really well in the Ancestry context, which is a really fantastic experience. You know, you go from operating a, a rinky-dink little startup with, um, you know, thousands of users to suddenly working on a product with millions of users. And it's an amazing thing to be able to build something at that kind of scale. So that was a really fun experience working at Ancestry for a little while. But um, I knew I wanted to start a company. And so uh, when my year was up, I decided to move back to Toronto and, and found Wellsimple. It's, I know you said one of the catalysts was your friends and your, uh, by the time, ex-colleagues, they're helping manage their money. Did you know that the path forward would be the, the management of money? Or what, was, what were some of the thinking that went in behind that? I get this question a lot from entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting a business, but they're not quite sure what to work on. 
And I, you know, after we sold the company, I was in a similar stage. There were a whole bunch of ideas I was excited about, and I didn't know exactly what to work on. So I actually developed this process where for that year while I was still working at Ancestry, every day I would force myself to put at least one idea down on a piece of paper. And they were often really bad ideas. You can imagine by the end of the year, I had thousands of ideas and, and most were garbage. Um, but then I went through this exercise of trying to rank them by adding a column for how big do I think it can be? Column for how likely do I think I could execute against this? Uh, and third was how passionate am I about the problem? And I'd give the, each you know uh, idea a score out of three and add them up and see whichever ones rose to the top. And the idea of making money simple for people so that they would be able to live the lives they've always dreamed of was something I was passionate about. It seemed like a massive opportunity. And I thought I'd be able to execute it. I thought we had a unique perspective on why we could build something in this space that would resonate with you know our, our target audience. Drilling down onto the problem, what did you see, and I don't know if this is 2013 or 2012, 2013, what was the the biggest problem that you saw with the existing offerings within this sort of the banking sector in, in Canada? Because I know the, the credit unions and, and the, the established banks, they don't intend to have complex uh, offerings. They, they endeavor to simplify. Did you <laughs> I, not. I don't I know. Really, I fully agree. Actually, I think the okay. industry does a great job of trading on complexity. Okay. You know, I think industries that have thrived in in the last several decades have been ones where the asymmetry of information. You know, I am a seller of something, and I know more than you as a buyer. Yes. Um. So it makes sense for me to make it complex because it it makes you feel like you need me. Yes. And I feel like the industry has actually done really well on that on that false premise for a long time and had no real incentive to change it. And so for me, when I think about the biggest problems in the investment industry, um, I think about a few. So one is, if you think historically how people used to invest, you only really had two options. If you had a lot of money, you could hire someone to do it for you. But even that came with really high fees and was a very much a service model. It was all about the relationship you had with someone. It was less about performance and less about, you know, it was actually about the person you knew who would come over to your house, take you golfing once a year, get to know your family, which is a valuable thing, but costs a lot of money because it's a high touch service model. If you didn't want that, or you couldn't get access to that because typically you'd need a million dollars or more to even get into that service, your only other option was to do it yourself. You know, open up a discount brokerage account, start trading, buy a mutual fund at the bank yeah. branch. And the data on this is clear. Most people are terrible investors. Yes, yes. You know, we don't know how to do it properly. We get nervous. We panic at the wrong times. We get excited at the wrong times. And so we saw an opportunity to create something that was accessible to everybody, no account minimums, use technology and design to simplify the process so that you could do something smart and feel really good about it and help you get on your way and still did it for you. So you didn't actually need to go through the process of learning how to invest, you know, all up front and trading stocks, um, which, you know, we, we wouldn't advocate anyway. So for us, we saw that as the opportunity. How do you take this thing, which most people know is so important? I invest because it enables me to live this life I've always wanted, but just don't know where to get started and really simplify that process. That's where it all came from. And did you have a, a very clear demographic of cohort in mind you know, I, I often hear a well simple as being targeted towards millennials, but I know that that's 
that's much more than that. But were you thinking initially just millennials? I think why we've had that perception, and I think it's a fair one, is when we started the company, uh, we were solving this problem for ourselves. Okay. And, you know, the founding team is a group of millennials. And so the first question we asked is, what, what do we want when it comes to an investment service? Because we were the first clients, you know, it was our money that went in first and then our friends and our family. And so I think it's evolved from there where today, you know, our oldest client now I think is 102 and we have clients that invest $1,000 with us to, you know, tens of millions with us too. So we cover a much broader spectrum of the investable population out there. Um, but our, our initial focus was on solving this problem for ourselves. And I think that's why we've always had this perception of being for millennials. If you were going to to rank what is the the most appealing element for, say, let's stick with millennials, whether it's simplicity of process, whether it's the the, the, the digital app, and I know that's not, that's not distinct from simplicity, but there's the app, there's the simplicity, there's the low fees. Would you sort of rank those in terms of, okay, these, this is the, the main value proposition and this is number two, number three? Simple to us is really the key insight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of our, our first core value as a company, we have five core values, is simple is better. And I think it speaks to our attempt to take a complex topic and really simplify it and humanize it so people can feel like they have their arms wrapped around the problem and feel really good about where they're going. That's the key for us. So what does simple mean in this context. What is simple about your service that is complex when offered by others? I would say, you know, for, for us, it's this funny thing, because I think simple is often conflated with simplistic, yes. which is not what, the way we think about it. In fact, Steve Jobs used to say simple is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's harder than complex, right? Yes. And so for us, when we think about simple, it's how do you take every element of investing and make it understandable and human? An example would be, you know, our the way we approach content and advertising. Um, if you think about the way the entire investment industry talks to folks about the reason for investing, it's all around this concept of retirement and how if you invest now, the compound interest 40 years from now will enable you to have an after-tax income of X. It's not that hard of a, a concept to understand, but it's not language that we use every day. So I think one of the ways we try to simplify financial decisions is humanize it, make, speak in normal English, help you understand what it is that you're you know, choosing to do and the decisions that you're making so that you set yourself up for success. And a, a way we do that, you, you know, our last, our most recent advertising campaign, you know, rather than um, you know, talking to people about oil prices and interest rates and the need for you know, an, an expert advisor in these days of complexity, we hired an Oscar award-winning film director, or Errol Morris, mm-hmm and had him interview real people about money. And it was as simple as that. It was just an honest look into people's relationship with money in a way to try and humanize that for for our clients and for the public. Um, And so I think those are some of the elements that we try to use. Tell us a little bit about the the genesis behind that campaign. Clearly, simplicity is a a key driver. One of the things that I found was really interesting about it is that while you are endeavoring to approach millennials, at least most of the people that interviewed are probably 25 to 35, maybe a few older. But you didn't 
tap into really environmental themes or, you know, people aren't standing out in fields or by lakes or by rivers. There's, there's you don't not... have the classic bank ad with, you know, two people on a boat staring out into the horizon somewhere, right? No, but, but also <laughs> even just more than that, the point of departure does not seem to be, oh, this is what millennials care about. They care about the environment. They care about social consciousness. They care about doing good, right? All of those tropes are, have been sort of put to one side and it's a very clear focus on just pure storytelling. And there's obviously a great deal of simplicity in that, but I'd be very interested to hear sort of the thinking behind that as a concept and how did you get there? To be honest, it was a risk because it's not scripted. And so there wasn't a process of saying, what are the stories we want to tell? Or how are we going to appeal to our target demographics? Um, it was a let's try to find interesting people and give them a microphone and see what happens. So we had no idea what we were going to get going into the process. And I think you know the result is is exactly what you would intend. But I think the beauty of the way we got there um, and why it feels so authentic, like authentic stories is because that's what it is. You know, there was no script. It wasn't um, coming up with a marketing campaign in a boardroom somewhere saying, and millennials love the environment, so let's have someone talk about the environment yeah. and see what happens, right? It was just a, let's see what people talk about and then see if there are really interesting stories in that that we can share. So it was a very authentic uh, sort of process, but it was a risk because we didn't know if we'd get anything good. <laughs> the And one of the things that I, I find really refreshing, I'll be very candid, is that uh, there's no brand plugs, as you well know. Um, uh, each piece could be enjoyed, and uh, I certainly uh, found them very engaging, completely independent of whatever brand messaging, because there, there is no brand messaging there. Maybe it's very subliminal, subliminal, but I don't know. Yeah. You know. I mean, for us, I think that's part of this, is we're trying to build a brand that stands out as something that is relatable and human and isn't in your face. I think what's cool is we've gotten to a point where when an ad comes on, even though it doesn't say well simple, I think a lot of people actually can tell now that it's, oh, that's another well simple ad. Yes. Um, so even though the brand isn't in your face, there is something about the brand that is distinctive and is getting through the noise and is becoming familiar. And that's, I think, pretty powerful. Um, you know, we're still a new company and I think building a brand takes time. Um, you know, for us, the way we think about great brands, it's ones you think about a brand makes a promise to the world. And then the product is the one is how you fulfill that promise. Um, and the way you build true brand credibility over time is you kind of fulfill that promise every single day with consistency. Um, and that takes time. So I think it's very cool for us to start to see, you know, that brand recognition happen across Canada. We're really excited about it. Earl Morris, why why him? What was the thinking behind uh, him as the as uh, he's not the face, obviously, but he's he's the one executing this. And then, of course, he he's on camera himself eventually. When you were a little boy, I was approached by an investment guy. Do you know this story? Well, that was just serendipitous. Okay. You know, he, um, he was, uh, one of the people we brought in to interview during the campaign was his son. Yeah. And they thought, it, wouldn't it be cool if we flipped it? And 
Errol's son went behind the the camera and interviewed Errol on camera for a, a change, and it, it worked out really well. It's such a fascinating, I think, um, interview. What do you think it was that mom saw? One of the cuffs on his pants had been reinforced with adhesive tape. <laughs> Something I just didn't see. But for her, it was pregnant with meaning. My name is Errol Morris, and I'm a writer and filmmaker, like my son. My for us, it's we respect Errol's work. We think he's one of the best film documentary filmmakers of, of our era, and in particular because he knows how to ask good questions and get things out of people that way. And so that was the, the point, because the whole campaign centered on could we get interesting stories out of people. So for that, we kind of went and tried to find the best the best interviewer that we could, uh, yes. and and saw what we would and and saw what we could get. The billboards as well are very visually arresting. I, see, what I what I thought was very uh, appealing and engaging about it is that it really, to me, it says Canada in a way that it's not hackneyed, right? Um, it's not images of snow, but it 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 seems to me like a celebration of our pluralistic society. You see people of color, you see people who are not models, but are interesting looking, right? I, yeah. I, I don't know. I look at them and I sort of think, okay, that's not, that could be New York and that could be London and Paris, but but it's Canada. I think this, for, for us, this is this theme of how do you inject humanity into finance, right? Because if you do think about a traditional bank ad, you know, my joke before about two folks sitting on a boat staring yes. off on the horizon almost seems like you can picture that ad and it's probably two models and a stock photo you know photograph yes. yeah. for us um, we wanted to tap into something much more raw and real and in fact when we first you know came out with this concept of how do you really build a brand in financial services we launched our website which went on to win the webby as the best financial services website in the world we actually used a ton of photography and it was all from friends of ours and front, you know, Facebook photos that we liked. Um, it was not stock photography. None of it was staged. And something about it looked off. Like you said, there's something that's just different and a little bit off of what I would expect in an ad or on a polished website. But we think that that speaks to the humanity in it, that there is something authentic and real. Um, and we think that that's pretty powerful when you can introduce it to... Um, to financial services, which we, we think are, are known for being cold. You know, I think when people think about finance, you think about it as cold, big banks, you know, it's uh, always suit and tie. Um, but it's at the end of the day, one of the most important human things to get right, you know, saving and investing is, is, is really what enables you to achieve your goals long-term, to provide the life you've wanted for yourself and your family. So we thought like, why not tap into that humanity with the brand and, and really speak to people in a different way? When I look at sort of traditional bank advertising. And I haven't made a study of it, but I, I feel that there's always a tension between wanting to be accessible and those images that you're you're talking about, that this could be you or this should be you, uh, d depending on how aspirational it is. But there's also an element that's also very clearly comes through around the expertise and the authority and the trust, right? That uh, we're grownups and the we're grown-ups part doesn't seem to be as front and center with yours. I, that's not a criticism, but it certainly, it, I feel it's kind of an, it's it's more palpable when you're looking at RBC or TD, right? 
that you know we're the authority here yeah i think um i think their intention is there um i think most people in the general public will call bs though yes because you know my generation um, came out of school, started in the workforce during the last great recession um, when the financial markets collapsed and the housing markets collapsed. And a lot of that was caused by these same institutions that are encouraging you by saying, we are the experts, you know, trust us, we're the grownups, and we know how this all works. And a lot of that was called into question when that yeah, happened. Yeah, though in fairness, in Canada, we came out looking, relatively speaking, so, good in that regard. So with respect to the financial crisis, that's yeah. for sure. But if you look at the data in the papers in the last two years about all of the sales scandals at the banks, yeah. Yeah. you know, you, you do start to question that, does a bank put my interests first? Yes. And I think that's the question that people are asking for the first time is, you tell me that you have my best interests. You tell me to trust because I'm a grown-up, but do you really have my best interests, you know, first? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that... Um, is important to understand. I think that's why something that's fresh and different is so refreshing and compelling. Uh, we're trying to build a brand. You, you also think about the way that marketing happens at big companies. You know, this is a knock yes. on the banks, so yes. just a big company. Yes. You have a marketing department that comes up with great campaigns, and then you have a product department that's totally unrelated, other side of the business, that's responsible for, you know, delivering the products. Yes. They couldn't be more disconnected. And so, when I told you before, how do you build a, an authentic brand over time? It's, well, you make the brand promise, you come up with a great campaign idea in marketing, but then you've got to deliver. And so for us, our chief marketing officer is also our chief product officer for a reason, because the more you deliver on the product every day, you know, the more you build trust over time. And I think banks are struggling with that, which is like, we make this promise, but does the product really deliver? We have billboards that talk about how easy the mobile apps are, but are they really that easy? <laughs> you know, it's, yes, it's this yes. disconnect that I think actually um, people pick up on. And then the other element too, which I think clearly resonates with many millennials is the, the humor and the, the authenticity where it's uh, one of the people on uh, interviewed was talking about pistachios. When I eat pistachios, I'm addicted to pistachios. Uh, when the pistachios are really hard to open, I just don't bother with those anymore. And he I've uses language that, that you would not see in an RBC spot, yeah. as an example. Well, I think, you know, one of the cool things that we did, because we believe branding is such an opportunity, we don't use agencies for our design work, right? We do it all in-house, and, and we built a creative, an in-house creative agency to do this work. And I think one of the cool things they appreciate is the sort of work they're able to do as an in-house agency is different than what they would yes. have been able to do as an external agency. You would never be able to pitch a bank on a really big high quality campaign where there is no script, yeah. where you have no idea what the output is gonna be. Uh, there's too much risk in that sort of an endeavor. And I think that's one of the cool things that our, our team gets to play with is they get to push the envelope, they get to try something that's a little out of the box because there, isn't, there aren't the same demands that would come as, as being a, a client, for example. Are you finding yourself pulling back? Often I can imagine me with this kind Personally? of license. Well, with this kind of license, <laughs> I can I can imagine there would be a tremendous temptation to say, "Well, we got this through. Where can we where can we take this?" And and there may be occasions where you would say, "Well, I, I'm not sure. That might be too far." You know, I think our team has great judgment, and um, I think the things that guide their decisions are how do you create an honest conversation around money. How do you do right by our clients? And I think if those are the guideposts that they use, then we'll keep pushing the boundary. But 
you know, I think it, it'll always be in jest. Like, for instance, I, I saw on my way in, we're across the street from the Shopify Toronto yes. office. Yes. You know, one of our first billboards was, was actually one. right there. Yes. Um, around yeah. the Shopify IPO and the employee stock option lockup was ending. Uh, so we took out a billboard that said, hey, Shopify employees, here's what to do with those options of yours, right? With a whole blog post about how to think about selling options and the tax consequences and how to build a portfolio out of the proceeds and all the rest of it. And, you know, for me, you know, th that was a little bit on the edge, yes. um, but at the same time, it was designed to be helpful, like honestly helpful of to- um, yeah, yeah. And uh, were they to, in the loop on that? Oh, or no. Did they, no, they, yeah, yeah, they yeah. came in one day inside. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, the key lessons Mike Katchen has learned over these last four years and the one acquisition he definitely would have done differently. And just sort of, I wanted to sort of end up on the app. What do you think from a utility perspective is most important to, to, it could be millennials or, or any sort of cohort now, like what sort of user feel, user experience is, is absolutely essential? Well, there are two, two things that I think are really important. Uh, so one is getting started. So we talked before about simplicity and, yeah. and what does that mean? You know, one thing I didn't mention is how easy it is to get started. If you sign up with most banks or, or brokerage houses, you still got to fill out 50 pages of paperwork, mail it, fax it, or walk it in to open an investment account. So in fact, you can do it on your phone, on an app in, you know, five minutes is a really huge way of reducing the friction and making it easy for people to get started. So that's the first is get started. Once you're a client of Wellsimple, one of the things we really try to focus on is, is behavior and education. How do we help you become a more disciplined, more thoughtful investor over time? And one of the ways we do that is a lot of clients log in to check performance. You know, am I up or am I down? Yeah. And that's the exact wrong thing to be doing when you're a long-term investor because markets move up and down and all you're doing is playing with your emotions and not actually helping you be a disciplined investor. So we've now started integrating a lot of content into that. So when you log in, not only do you see your performance, you see right there also some context around it. So if you're down, we'll share why and why it doesn't matter in the long-term context and, and why you should understand how markets move up and down with links to articles that you can read more about or just you know links to schedule a call with an advisor if you're feeling a little nervous and you really want to get some more guidance about how to think about your investments over the long term. So for us, it's about when you log in, how do we help? If, if you were logging in to check performance, how do we help redirect that attention towards much more productive uses of, of time to make you smarter and more thoughtful? Right now, when people think about the financial sector in Canada, there's still a tendency to think of the big five or the big six. How long till it becomes the big seven? <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> you know, for us, um, we're pretty excited about how things are going. I mean, we're still a new business, but yeah. today we manage more than $2 billion in assets for 70,000 clients. And, you know, that's um, that's small in the context of the Canadian industry, but it's, it's pretty good growth. And we intend to keep growing faster and faster. Um, and the way we do that is we listen to clients and see what else we can be doing to be helpful partners to them to reach their long-term goals. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, we launched a savings account yeah. to help clients that have shorter-term savings goals that they're trying to, you know, save some money towards and with a great rate that we partnered with a bank to deliver. And so for us, it's just a question of, um, you know, how do we continue to do that every day for our clients? Because if we do that, we're going to be a, a really big institution someday. I know you said 
that uh, right from the start, the plan was to be a global company. You're in the UK, in the US, yeah. in Canada. Where do you, can you talk about where you're going to go from, from there? So it's it'll just be these three for now. Okay. Um, you know, doing three countries in a hyper-regulated yeah. industry uh, as an early stage company is a really difficult thing to do. So we're going to focus on getting these three countries right before we extend ourselves again. Um, but that said, I am excited about uh, continuing to build internationally. I think Asia is an incredibly exciting market and um, presents enormous opportunities. If you think about it, a lot of places in Asia didn't didn't go through the same evolution of their financial services industries as we have. You know, they didn't have bank branches, um, you know, widely dispersed yeah. throughout countries. They didn't have desktop computers as an online banking movement. They went straight to what a mobile phone can yeah. do for financial services. And so working in that environment, you can almost reimagine what financial services should look like if it didn't have the legacy that it does. And uh, being a part of that and, and, um, and the opportunity that comes with it is something that gets me really excited. I, I know, you know, you're in what year four now, and you, you've had very, you know, consistent, steady growth. Are there any, are there any steps that you would do over any, any regrets or things that you sort of know now that you didn't know then? I know it's a very compressed time frame we're talking about. We've been fortunate, you know, we, um, We've grown really fast. I think we made a lot of good decisions. I would have, um, one thing I would have done is uh, we acquired two years ago a brokerage business called ShareOwner so that we could basically own, control the full stack. So all the way from where money is custodied and traded on exchanges all the way through the client experience. Um, we did that a year too late. Okay. Um, and the, the first, acquisition a year too late, you yeah, feel? Okay. Yeah, you know, controlling the end-to-end -end client experience is so important to delivering, um, you know, what I would call the magic that we try to deliver, the simple onboarding and the great reporting and the simplicity. And for the first year, we really struggled um, trying to build on top of partners that weren't as interested in, um, you know, modern technology okay. and enabling us to deliver on that seamlessness. And so I would have done that a year earlier. <laughs> Um, and you know, today in the U S and the UK, we don't have that capability, um, yet in house. So I would think that, you know, over time continuing to work with partners who are, who are more technologically adept in those countries, um, or perhaps, uh, building out those capabilities ourselves will enable a much better experience there too. Cryptocurrencies. That's, that's not among the offerings right now, is it? No, no. Is My it, thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> by all means. And we can... Yeah. Listen, cryptocurrencies are a massively volatile speculative investments and they're not, that's simple. not, they're not simple. And that's not to say they won't change the world. I think blockchain is a transformative technology. Um, I'm really excited about it. I have no idea if Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other cryptocurrencies are going to become a new standard that will transform the world and be long lasting. Uh, even if they are, I think the key for people to understand, investing is not a get-rich-quick scheme. And most people that chase get-rich-quick schemes end up getting burned. Yeah. And so our approach to investing is build yourself a thoughtful, boring, diversified portfolio to meet your long-term goals. If you really want to do crypto or any speculative investment, just do it with a small piece of your portfolio. So that if it goes to zero, you're not going to, you know, 
burn yourself as a result. Yeah. So for us, we, we usually cap it at 5%. That number should change depending on who you are and, and what your, your risk tolerance is like. But don't invest more than 5% in any speculative investment because you, know, you really don't want to get yourself in trouble with when it comes to your long-term needs and goals. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really glad that uh, we had the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon. Thanks for having me. That was Mike Katchen, founder and CEO of Wealthsimple. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader that you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Halsman. You can reach me at nhalsman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at, at ng Halsman. This show is produced by Stephanie Werner. See you next week.